This podcast is a presentation of Indianola First Assembly of God Church. For more information, please visit us online at indianolafirst.com. Hallelujah. Well, we're in a series right now uh, called 714, and uh, last week we got that thing started, and it's a series based off of a great revival verse found in 2 Chronicles 7.14, you've all heard it probably numerous times. You've probably heard even messages on it. But we're doing a four-week series just going through each word line by line and uh, word by word and kind of dissecting this verse over four weeks. Uh, and it's not by accident that uh, today's date is 7.14. I think that's cool. There's a group of us here this morning that were praying at 7. 14, we prayed for a half hour for the service. We prayed for you. We prayed for our nation. We prayed for uh, just God to, to send his holy revival to our wonderful America that we love so dearly. And so many of us have had relatives and, and uh, uh, family members and, and friends that have given their life's blood literally so that we could have the freedoms that allow us to even meet in here today. You know, so we love this country. And we don't want to just let it go. As the church of the living God, we don't want to just let it go to, uh, to uh, uh, haphazard ways and uh, people that uh, dismiss the word of God and dismiss the idea of God altogether. Uh, there, there's got to be a fight within the church, amen? And, and that fight should drive us to seeking out God for revival of our nation. That's the whole purpose of this series. And uh, I, I just want to read the verse to you again, 2 Chronicles 7:14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And this verse is literally the recipe verse for revival. It's the recipe verse for revival. We need, church, a healing in our land. A few of you believe it. We need a healing in our land. Amen. Amen. We do. Not just politically, but spiritually. In fact, the only way to see political change is to first have a spiritual renewal or revival. It starts with God's people. It always does. We defined revival last week by saying it is taking that which has been alive at some point, but is now dead and bringing it back to life. It's revival. And during this four-week series, we're going to, again, dissect this whole uh, 2 Chronicles 7.14 verse word by word. And I, I really don't think I've ever preached four sermons in a row on one verse. But that's exactly what we are going to do. Um, this is number two of four. I, also, I want to say that our sermon series follows our book of the month this month, a book that everyone should read. It is a simple, simple book. It's not deep. Uh, you don't have to, like, you know, have this amazing intellect to understand it, it's a simple book, but it's powerful, and it's by Bob Vanderplatz, who is a, a head of family leader right here in Iowa, and it's called uh, If 714. And so pick up that book. Everybody in this church should read that book, and, and it's one of those that you could read probably once a year just to remind yourself of the basic truths that are in it. Um, last week, we talked about the word if. We started the series with that, and how uh, whenever you see that word if in the Bible, it either follows a promise or is a predicate to a promise. Very important you understand that. This is to say that the promises in God's word always have conditions attached to them. 
They always do. When the conditions of the if are met, the blessings of the promise will come to pass. And we do this as parents. We talked about this last week. If you clean your plate, kids, you can have dessert. It's basically the same concept. If you pick up your toys, you can have, or you can play outside with friends. In our, in our scripture this morning, we know that if means there are conditions coming, and if they're met, we will receive the blessing of that promise, which is God hearing our prayers, forgiving our sins, and healing our land. And man, we need that. We also talked about the meaning of my people who are called by my name, and these words tell us uh, who the promise is for and who the conditions must be met by. My people is possessive. God is a jealous God when it comes to his people. They are his. Turn to your neighbor and say, I am his. Turn to your other neighbor and say it again. I am his. I am his. You are his. And God's jealous about that. He wants you. He desires you. You are his own possession. And we talked about what it means to be his. Only those that receive him, those who believe in his name, these are the ones that he gave the right to become children of God. And that's found in John 1.12. Called by my name, everyone who has become a child of God by accepting him has a call upon their life. A call to live for him, out of, out, live for him out loud and go and make disciples of all nations as Matthew 28.19 tells us. We have a great commission, don't we? To be called by his name is to not take on the Lord's name in vain. Don't call yourself a Christian, a Christian, a Christian, a Christian, and then live as if he's not your all in all or as if only part of his word applies to you. That would be taking his name, calling yourself a Christian, and holding on to your vanity or self-centeredness. And that brings us to the next words in this verse. 2 Chronicles 7:14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. So let's start with the first part. Will humble themselves. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. To know me is to love me. I must be a heck of a man. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. Yeah, scoop it, right? <laughs> scoop it. Whenever I see that word humble, I think of that song. What does it truly mean to humble yourself? I love I absolutely love what C.S. Lewis said about humility. He said, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. And this is worthy of writing down. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Pride is a word that is often used to describe the opposite of humility, and that's true. But most people don't think of themselves as prideful. So they really don't, they see this word, oh, you gotta be humble, humble yourself. They say, well, I'm a pretty humble guy. I'm a pretty humble gal. Most people see themselves as fairly humble. But are they truly? If we're really gonna get into the verse and we're gonna dig, we gotta be open, we gotta open up our hearts enough to be a little self-aware. 
How many have ever just opened your heart to God and he let him do a little bit of surgery on you? It's not fun. It's not easy. Nobody wants to admit that they have some issues or areas that they need to grow in because they're weak in. But folks, church, you gotta understand, we have not arrived, not one of us. And the second you think that you have, you've miserably failed. So open up your heart and think about this. Most people are pretty self-absorbed, self-centered, or even self or even not self-aware, basically, when they're being selfish. You see, what determines uh, whether someone is humble or prideful is really about what's going on in their heart. Do they speak in a way that is pure truth or a way that makes them look good to their listener? This is getting down into the nitty-gritty of it. Do they seek with their real actions to exalt their own position or to exalt others? And I can give you an example of this. Uh, When I was waiting tables at a country kitchen during my uh, college days, um, I always beat the waitresses in tips. Always did. And I was the only server who was a guy. And I I didn't work any harder than they did. And I uh, wasn't more gifted than the other servers. But it was all because of the self-centeredness in the customers. And I'll, I'll explain this. It was really interesting to me. And I watched it over and over and over again. Guys and gals would tip me, both. The guys, would, the guys would tip the girls, the waitresses, but the girls would often not tip or tip the girls, uh, the girls' servers poorly. Why was that? And I always thought, why, why do women not tip women? And you could say, you're, you, you, that's not true, I tip women. Well, I'm not talking about you, I'm just talking... Generally speaking, this is what went on over and over again. I always beat them in tips. The women would not tip the women waitresses. And I think it's because there was a selfishness within many of those female customers that didn't want to see a fellow woman get ahead of them. I know for a fact that there were servers who didn't get tipped by women because they were too pretty. Really good-looking women? How many are a good-looking woman? Come on, Lloyd, you're not a woman. Put your hand down. (laughs) I mean, God made you beautiful. Raise your hand, ladies. You're beautiful, right? Raise them up. Some of you still aren't participating. I'm not going to keep preaching until every woman in this place raises her hand and says, I'm beautiful. Men, turn to the women and say, you're beautiful. God don't make junk. But when those what the world would call beautiful girls that were waiting tables would come to another table of girls. That table of girls wouldn't tip them as big. Happened a lot. Why? Selfishness, jealousy, all the things that I'm talking about. Pride. That's a humility problem. That's thinking of yourself and not being selfless. And guys, uh, why are there so many of us that lie about how big the fish we caught was? How much the deer weighed? Well, it would have been a 16-pointer, but, you know, a a couple broke off. It must have had a fight with another buck. It was, was, (laughs) guess, 12 official, but it would have been 16. How fast we were going in our car. We lie about that. How good our golf game is. 
I mean, when nobody's looking, do you ever see guys just kind of kick the ball a little closer to the hole? You do that, don't you, Brandon? It's called pride, brother. There's an altar right here. Come to it. No. <laughs> Why do we do that as guys? Because we desire so much for others to think well of us because we are thinking of ourselves and not being selfless. And it doesn't matter if you're old, young, female, male, there is this, this thing in our society that just we want to put ourselves up on a pedestal and be better and look better than everyone else. And America reeks with it. Those are just two little examples. And we can talk about being humble and we can put on a false humility, but true humility can only be achieved by emptying ourselves of self and becoming others focused. I love what 1 Corinthians 15, 31 says, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. This is the Apostle Paul saying, I die daily. He had to die daily to those things the flesh desired, those prideful things that sought his own welfare over the well-being of others. And I don't know about you, but that's hard to swallow because I think back through my week, I think back through my life, I think back about the times where I exaggerated too far and it became a lie. Am I the only one who's ever done that? Made myself look good, chose my words just perfectly so I looked really good to the people I was talking to. You ever do that? Oh, man. It's hard to swallow when you start thinking about all the things that prove we're prideful and we're not humble. And, I, and church, it takes constant work. It takes a lifetime of constant work, dying to yourself. I die daily, Paul says. It's not something you just do once at an altar and then it's all better and then you're fine. You know, it's every single day. You give that to God, you give that to God, you give that to God, and every little day you get a little closer, you get a little closer to looking more like Jesus and being selfless instead of being selfish. It really takes recognizing that when that selfish, sinful nature within us tries to overtake us and rear its ugly head, we have to put it back in its place. Thought comes in, we go, I'm not gonna say that. I don't, I'm not going to do that because I'm a selfless person, not a selfish person. I care more about others and their needs than I do about myself and my needs. See, most people live in a non-self-aware reality. I, I think of this all the time, and I pray this all the time. God, make me self-aware of me. That's one of the most powerful things you can do. Show me, God, who I really am. You, God just might answer that, and you might just figure out who you really are and what you need to change. Is there anybody here perfect this morning? I'm not. I'm hiding because I'm so not. I wrote this down. People in general, a lot of people, are, aren't even self-aware of the fact that they aren't self-aware. You can think about that a long time. I don't know if you ever get the end of it, but it's, it's true. One of the best examples in Scripture of pure humility is found in John chapter 3. And this is the account of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples during 
his last supper with them. And they're all together, and this is the last time they're going to be together. And Jesus gets up in John 3, 4 through 5, says, So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. And can you imagine Jesus, the Messiah, the King of Kings, the one through everything was created? I mean, he should pay homage to nobody. They should be falling at his feet. And he gets down on his hands and knees and begins washing the dirty, dusty feet of those disciples. And remember, in those days, they didn't wear Nikes. They wore Jerusalem joggers with no socks. Their feet were filthy. They were dirty. Those of you that went to Botswana, we were kind of not in the same area, but the same kind of landscape. Just that no grass, no, no, just dirt everywhere. Your feet got dirty. We had socks and shoes on and our feet got dirty. Peter didn't like it. He didn't want him to do it, but Jesus rebuked him and washed his feet anyway. And actually, after rebuking him, Peter said, well, then wash all of me. Go ahead, wash, wash my whole being. Jesus took the posture of a servant. He humbled himself. He clothed himself in humility. He literally took the servant's towel and put it around him. Others first, selflessness. And he did this even unto death on a cross for our sake. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 11 through 12, the greatest among you must be a servant. But those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. And it's really interesting to think that one day every knee will bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. It's going to be an awesome day, right? But can you imagine how humiliating that will be for those who rejected Christ? For Lucifer himself, Satan himself, to have to take a knee and declare Jesus Lord, because that's going to happen too. Every person who's ever hated God, who spoke against him, Every liberal thinker that has gone off the rails into areas that we're God and we decide what is best for humanity and rejected God. Every person that's ever stood at a, in, a, in, a, in a, a protest and, and screamed that women have the right to kill their own babies, they're going to have to take a knee too. Every one of us in our failures is going to have to take a knee in our shortcomings. This is going to be a humiliating day for the enemies of God, but it will also be a humiliating day for those who have not humbled themselves in his sight, including church people. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We wonder sometimes, why doesn't God just send revival? Send revival, God. We need it, right? We need it. If we need it, we should get it. And he's like, I oppose the proud and you're full of it, pride. Or maybe it's something else you're full of. Everyone who refuses to walk in humility, think about this, they will be humbled. And my thought is why not humble yourself so that God doesn't have to humble you for you? Wouldn't it just be a lot easier to humble yourself? Empty yourself of self, think of others first. And again, that just, you can't wave a wand and make that happen. You gotta work at it. And every time something comes out of your mouth that 
puts you up on a pedestal, makes you look good, better than you really are. Every time you tell a little white lie to make people like you, every time you post something on social media or do a selfie so you can brag about something to lift yourself up and exalt yourself, you should have a check. And that check should say this. It's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. He'll say, are you really, really wanting to go that route right now and be prideful? Or do you want to humble yourself? Is this hitting anybody this morning? And remember our verse today and the conditions of the promise that it contains. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Here's a condition. It's the first condition of the verse. We know who the promise is for. We know the promise is, is going to have conditions coming because of the word if. We know who the promise is for. My people, God's people, who are called by his name. But now we get into the list of conditions to that promise, starting with humbling ourselves. We want God to heal our land. We want revival to come. It starts with God's people, that's you, humbling yourselves and taking yourself down off that pedestal. And can I, I just want to say this too. There's many, many people in this room and many, many Christians within his church that have very humble moments. They live predominantly humble lives. They walk in humility. I know that that's true. And let me encourage you today in that. Pour gasoline on that fire. Blow it up. Do it more. Like I said, you never arrive, right? I'm not saying that nobody here is humble. I'm just saying we need to seek and always be aware that we need to be humble and walk in it continually. The next section of this, it's the second condition listed for this promise, and pray, and pray. We'll humble themselves and pray. We gotta humble ourselves and we must pray. And don't miss the fact that praying is really the ultimate act of humility. Our praying consistently proves that we are dependent on him and not on ourselves. In fact, a strong prayer life is the natural result of humility. I'm gonna say that again. A strong prayer life is the natural result of humility. In his book, uh, If 714, Bob Vanderplatz says that prayer is a measure of our humility. Prayer takes effort. It takes time. It takes emotional and physical energy. It puts others first as we pray for those in need. It's humbling. It's a humbling thing to bow our heads in prayer and have an intimate conversation with the Savior of our soul. And prayer says, I can't, I can't do this thing on my own, God. I need your help. I'm not strong enough to get through this without you. I'm dependent on you. That's what prayer says when we actively engage in it. And church, as I was writing this, I, I, I struggled. I, I'm gonna be honest. Because I've prayed a lot, I've, I've preached a lot of messages about prayer. I've preached whole series on prayer. And I, my, my struggle was, I don't wanna just say the same thing over and over and over. But church, we need to be praying. We need to be a praying church. We've invested a lot of money into a prayer room over here. It's awesome. Have you been in there yet? 
It's really shaping up. It's going to be open very, very soon. I want to make it a 24-hour prayer room where you come in with a, maybe you get a, a key code or you get an account and, and you're approved and then you can walk in from that other entrance, entrance we put in, put your code in, walk in, there's music playing already and you can just go to prayer. The whole room is surrounded by the word of God because we wrote all over the walls, we filled it with scripture, but prayer, why do we spend so much of our assets on a prayer room? Because prayer is important. Preaching is important in the church, that's why this pulpit is at the center of the sanctuary. Because preaching is important. The preaching of God's word is important. But prayer is important, and we need to invest in it as a church. Our time, our energy, our finances, whatever it takes, we got to become a praying church. Are you with me? I don't want to keep saying the same thing over and over and over, but you know what? Until we're praying, until we're a really praying church, which we've got a great start, don't get me wrong, I'm going to keep preaching the same thing over and over. Are you all right with that? Prayer is the constant acknowledgement that you are actually desperate for him and completely dependent on him. You can't do this on your own. You need him. That's why you go to the Lord in prayer. Prayerlessness is prideful and the opposite of humility. If your prayer life isn't consistent, you're full of pride. I'm sorry. Because you're saying you can do this without prayer. You can do this without him. You can have a relationship with him. You can have a, a, a real personal relationship with Jesus Christ and you don't even have to talk to him. Who do you think you are? Prayer is everything, church. It's everything. I can't help but think that in a marriage relationship, you know, communication is the key, Right? It's also something we have to continually work at and get better at. And with Jesus Christ as our groom and we, the church, as his bride, we should do no less. We should realize that communication is the key with God and we must work at it and even develop ourselves in it. And that only comes through practice, through doing it. It's like the old farmer who said to his, he was talking with his wife and his wife just said to him, she said, she said honey, you haven't told me you love me in like 30 years. And he said, I told you the day we got married, if it ever changes, I'll let you know. <laughs> you know, that won't work for marriage. That doesn't work, does it? It doesn't work with God either. It's not a one-time thing at the altar and then we just kinda, oh. And guys, I know you pray. But again, we can always pray more. I want to. I want to. I want to give you a verse. First Thessalonians five through seventeen or five seventeen. It's three word verse. Pray without ceasing. And I believe many Christians actually realize the importance of prayer, but they take it to a place of legalism. They set out to pray 10 minutes a day, a half hour a day, an hour a day, and depend on their ability to do it without fail. When they do fail, because how many know when you get in a routine like that, I'm going to pray an hour a day, an hour a day. And there's some people that can do really good at that. There's some people that really struggle with that. But eventually, everybody will miss a day for various reasons. But when they fail and they're in that mode, they beat themselves up and just decide that they aren't cut out for that kind of prayer life. 
They feel so bad about it that they slip into not praying at all. And see, this is how the devil gets the church to be a non-praying church. It's not that Christians go, I don't need to pray, I'm not gonna pray. I don't think anybody does that. They slip into it gradually. And this is a wonderful verse to get a hold of, pray without ceasing. No one could actually do that, by the way. Every minute of every hour, if you take that literally, and it is literal, but it's literal in maybe a different way than what you're thinking. Nobody can pray every minute of every hour of every day. Obviously not. So what does this verse mean? And I believe it's saying that we should never stop with our prayers. We should always be willing to go before the Lord and talk to him, maybe even cry out to him when we need to. And let me take it a step further. We should live in a place where we are having an ongoing conversation with the Lord all day long. It never stops. So it's not go to this place and pray for an hour every single day, and if you don't do it, God's going to, you know, smack you. It doesn't have to be a legalistic thing. Jesus is your best friend. He's your best friend. Start your day with prayer. Wake up in the morning, say, good morning, Lord. I don't know what this day has for me, but I'm excited about it. Thank you for giving me breath. Let me brush my teeth so my breath is good. Pray a little bit, maybe turn on some music, sing a little bit, worship a little bit, tell your wife how wonderful she looks, tell your husband that he's a hunky man, whatever you say. Pray some more, talk to God, ask him to give you divine appointments. You take a shower, you might sing in the shower, you might not. You get dressed and then you, Lord, I... You know, give me safe travel to work. As you go to work, you know, be praying for the people around you. It's an ongoing conversation. Pray without ceasing. It should just, it should just never stop. This, this conversation you're having with God just goes on and on and on and on. And you just invite him to every aspect of your life. That's prayer without ceasing. And church, if we, if we take that and boil it down to one hour a day or you will not be a good Christian, you're going to fail and you're going to feel like a terrible Christian. That's called legalism, and I'm not for it. I'm for praying an hour, sure. You get the difference? It's an ongoing thing. I'm even for coming in the morning and praying for an hour. That's great. I'm not against that. But pray as it's a conversation to God, however that works itself out. I lived in a little bit of legalism here in this area of my life. Because it was kind of told to me, you got to pray an hour a day or you can't be a pastor. I mean, that's just kind of how I felt. Pastor Jerry, do you ever feel that way? If you don't pray an hour a day, you're not, you're not what, what right do you have being a minister if you don't pray an hour a day? And an hour a day meant coming to the church early in the morning and praying. And then it was like, then it was told to me, well, you got to pray early in the morning because that's when Jesus did it. <laughs> so then I'm getting up at six in the morning. And if anybody knows me, I am not a morning person. I'm a late night guy. And I, it always bugged me because how do I give God my best when I'm not at my best, but I have to do it in the morning? It would be better if I prayed at one in the morning when I'm wide awake and just excited and everything's quiet around me and I can focus. Six in the morning? I don't even remember by 10 what I prayed at six. That might not be you. You might wake up and be wide awake. You know, we're all different. Pray without ceasing. It's the attitude of prayer. It's the ongoing conversation of prayer that matters. Make it a personal thing. You know, God's big enough to handle your schedule. 
I hope that releases some of you from the guilt of not being able to pray an hour a day. It's kind of like scheduling weekly date nights with your wife. It's great to spend time together, right? It's great to go out together. I'm not against weekly date nights. But after a while, I would just assume that, okay, it's Thursday night at 7 o'clock. It's our date night. If you're going to do it out of duty rather than the overflowing, spontaneous love you feel for her, it's not going to mean as much. I mean, talk about boring. Some of you are like, I have a date night. We've been doing it for 20 years. Great. Do it on a different night sometime just to be crazy. (laughs) Maybe that's my sanguine. (laughs) I don't know. I think that's like that with God. I mean, we can keep our appointments with him and we can have a prayer time every day. That's great. I'm not dissing that. But let that conversation be all day long. Don't reduce it to an hour or a half hour or whatever you do. I'm going to blitz you with some prayer scriptures this morning. And God, God basically told me to do this this morning. So I, I put our media people in a, in a little bit of a shock because there's a, there's a lot of scripture here. But I just want you to understand prayer. I want you to hear these scriptures all in a row. So I'm just going to read these scriptures. You got your ears on? Don't drift off. Focus. Focus, right? Because there's something powerful when you just read scriptures and you're getting them out there. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Philippians 4, 6. Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Romans 8.26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Matthew 6.6, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Matthew 6.7, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Luke eleven nine 9, and I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open for you. James five sixteen. therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Jeremiah 33, 3, call to me, and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. Ephesians six eighteen. praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, presidents, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of, our, of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Matthew 6, 5 through 8. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. It's another section of the same thing but for another gospel, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask him. He's just waiting for you to ask. Folks, I don't know, but when you start putting all these together and you start reading them, you start getting this, wow, if I pray, God hears me. Wow, if I ask anything in his name, it is done. 
Prayer is powerful. I mean, I'm just scratching, really just scratching the surface here. Matthew 6, 9 through 13, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also have forgiven our debtors. And let us, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Psalm 34, 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. Colossians 4, 2, continue steadfastly in prayer. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. I mean, could, could the word of God be any more clear to us? Prayer is like our lifeblood. It's everything. It's the basics. Guys, I, I'm telling you, I, I didn't even come close to getting all these read that I wrote down. I'm not going to read them all today. And I didn't even write down 10% of them. The word of God is so full of encouragement for us to pray and to seek God in prayer that prayerlessness has got to be one of the biggest sins in the church because it so blatantly tells us to over and over and over and over and the promises that are attached to it. Matthew 7, 7 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Already read that in a different, in a different uh, gospel. John 14, 13 says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And I'm, again, just scratching the surface. But this is Christianity 101. It makes no sense for the church to be prayerless or even just lacking in prayer. We don't need to be legalistic about it, but it, it is our basic, it's basic to our very relationship with Christ. Prayer. I play the piano. Did you know that? And over the years, I've had people say to me that they wish they could play the piano like me, or like you. I sure wish I could play the piano like you. And they wish, and they, wish they had that gift. Now understand, there are much better players out there than me. I, I'm not that great. There's amazing musicians that do have a lot of natural talent to play, and I, I understand natural talent, but every great piano player has one thing in common. They have practiced the basics. You can learn songs by going on YouTube, mimicking them. They'll show you, play this note, play this note, play this note, and if you practice just on mimicking, you will, uh, you will be able to play that song, and then when you go to a piano store and you sit down and you start playing, people think you're really good because you mimicked. But the reality is, if you don't understand the basic fundamentals of how the piano is set up and how the notes and scales work together to form chords and harmonies and ultimately songs, you won't really be able to just sit down and play. Pesky flies. You won't be able to sit down and play. It's the hard work of doing the fundamental exercises over and over and over again until you can't hardly stand to hear yourself play those uh, scales or those arpeggiated chords over and over and over. And when you can play them in your sleep, then that's when you start to know the instrument. And there are fewer and fewer people who want to put in that kind of work, partially because we live in a we-want-it-now kind of world, don't we? We want it fast. We're a microwave-it world, a microwave generation, instant gratification kind of people. We don't want to put the time and the effort in to get something done. 
And church, that attitude has carried over into our prayer lives. I, I want to do something. Is this thing on still? And again, I'm not doing this for any kind of, of, it's probably not on, is it? There we go, it's on now. Somebody turned it off. This wasn't planned. There we go. Are we on? Can you hear that? Okay, so I want to do something because I've practiced the fundamentals. I'm just going to play. I don't have any music. There, I proved it. I'm just going to play. I'm going to play anything, okay? songs that I have never heard before because I've done the fundamentals. You know the... Like, all the fundamentals that you do that are boring, that wear you out, that you can't stand listening to anymore... You do the fundamentals enough, and then it just flows. I, I only do that not to say, look at me, I'm a, I can flow on the piano. I'm not saying that. I do that because that's just like prayer. If you will practice the basics of prayer, just talking to God, prayer, ongoing conversation will just flow out of you all the time. And it's wonderful. It's a place of intimacy that you can't have if you don't do the basics. You cannot be intimate with God without a strong prayer life. And again, you know what I mean by that. Ongoing conversation, never stopping. See, we want to be instant gratification when it comes to God. Well, Lord, got a moment here. Um, help me in this situation right now. Haven't talked to you for a week or two or year, month, whatever it is. I need you to help me right now. Your word says it, I declare it. I was like, who are you? Maybe he'll say, apart from me, I never knew you. I have no relationship with you. You don't have a relationship with me. It's ongoing conversation. Are you hearing what I'm saying this morning? That kind of lack of communication with God, it's not gonna work. Your, your relationship with him won't last. You can't give them your leftover energy, your, your, your 911 prayers, which are only spoken when you're in trouble. Your fix-it-quick God so that I can get on living my life without true dependency on you. Or I don't need intimacy with God kind of attitude. The creator of the entire universe wants to talk with you every single day. And that's amazing, church. That's amazing. Take advantage of it. He's there going, I wish you'd just talk to me. I want to say something really strong. Should I say it? Are you sure? With no disrespect to anybody, 
who may be on medication for issues like anxiety, depression, those kinds of things. And sometimes it's very needed. But I think there's way too many people on those things, even in the church. This is between you and your doctor and God, so I'm not putting you down if you're on something like that. But I will say this. Maybe more prayer, more communication with God, more giving him all of that stuff that causes that would stop so much medication having to be dished out. I understand it's a hard thing to say, and I apologize if that offends you. I don't mean for it to. But we run to everything else, our hobbies even. I'm feeling really anxious. I, I just got to go golf. I, I'm feeling really stressed out. I better go shoot something. That's not always a good idea. But is there anybody who's ever said that and done that? Targets, not the people. I just, I, I'm just frustrated, I'm angry all the time. I just need to get out on the water, on the lake, on my boat, and I just need to be in the sanctuary of nature and, and fish. Maybe you just need to pray more. I, I, I hate to be the, the bearer of news that is so simple that a child could understand it, but maybe we just need to pray more. We've never had more help to get us through stuff than we have today. And more people are totally stressed out and falling apart. Maybe prayer is the answer. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray Two conditions. Humble themselves and pray. I'll read the rest of the verse. And seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. You know what I'm going to preach on next week, don't you? Then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. We wonder why there's not power in the church today. Like, like there should be. We wonder why signs and wonders don't always follow those that believe. Doesn't, I mean, it does sometimes, but how many know we could see a lot more of that? And we should see a lot more of that. We wonder all these things. Here's the recipe right here. God, we want you to heal our land. We want to be everything that you called us to be. We want to be used by you. We want to be empty of self. We want to be humble in your sight. And we want to have a prayer life that, and an intimacy with you, God, that we never could have imagined. Lord, we know that promises have conditions in your word. And God, we commit today to do our part. To not always put ourselves up on pedestals 
and to seek your face on a daily basis in prayer, to pray, to have an ongoing conversation with you all the time. It never stops. It pauses here and there, but it never stops. God, we desire all that you have for us once again, and we desire more than anything else, God, revival of our nation, a spiritual awakening. We repent, God, for not being humble, and we repent for being prayerless. We repent for our prayerlessness. Change our hearts, God. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First Assembly of God podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest message.